0: Good morning again. If you're a guest with us, we're glad that you're here this morning. Uh, I do want to encourage you, stop by the information tables out in the lobby, get some information about New Hope, ask questions. We're here uh, just to do life together, uh, to walk through this life and chase Jesus. And so I want to say that to say, we say this often, ministry in our mind is not about sitting in a chair and watching a stage. And so this is an important part of what we do, but this is just a part of what we do. And so I want to encourage you, learn more about the other things, that we're doing as a church hey unless you were traveling out of the country and just arrived back this morning you notice we had a pretty rough week here in the united states Uh, it was difficult Um, the lives of very many people were lost and there's all kinds of confusion uh, a lot of frustration and a lot of injustice that's been displayed and what does the church do in response to this it's a difficult thing. I've got to be honest with you. As this began to unfold, a lot of things took place in my mind and in my heart. Um, I've got some dear friends that I've watched affected by what's going on in our country, and I've got family members that have been affected by similar situations as well. And I'm confused, um, don't have all the answers, extremely nervous to be standing here right now addressing this to a large group of people, and yet convicted When I read scripture, particularly the scripture we're going to study today under the providence of God, I think God knew ahead of time that this was the passage we'd be studying in the Sermon on the Mount in our series. As I read and study that passage, we cannot remain silent in the face of injustice. We cannot look at what's going on in our world and just choose indifference. We can't. Not if we understand what the passage we're going to study today teaches. And so what do we do? as I began to pray and think, and honestly, I had a really hard time emotionally this week processing everything. It's reminded of a time I was driving home from college. I was in college in Knoxville, Tennessee, and I was driving home to Florida. I call Florida the promised land, but I'll call it Florida for you guys. But we were driving from Knoxville and my roommate was with me and uh, he's not um, an American. He was from Vietnam. And we're driving in Georgia in the middle of the night and uh, some of you have heard this story on the comical side because it was pretty funny, and we have had a lot of uh, fun in the years since laughing about it. But as I reflected on this, we were driving in the middle of the night, no other cars on the road, and we get pulled over. And my friend uh, really freaked out. I mean, really, kind of lost control of his emotions. He got a little bit emotional, and he was truly scared in that moment. Like, hey, I'm, I'm not a white guy, and I'm in Georgia with no cars on the road. I'm scared out of my mind. And those are his words. He just kind of lost it and got really, really fearful. And as I'm reflecting on that, though there were other elements to that story and it's not, he's, he's good, everything's okay, but uh, as I was reflecting on it, I thought to myself after the results of what's going on in our country this week, I'll never know what he felt in that moment because of how I was born. I'll never experience the fear that he felt there and So shame on me for trying to pretend like I understand it. On the flip side, my dad and my grandfather were police officers who were both killed. My cousin's a New York City police officer, and she is going to go to work tonight a little bit more scared than she would have before this week. And so I sit back and I look at both sides of this and I think to myself, man, we've got a problem. We've got a real problem. And what do we do? We're called in Scripture not to remain indifferent. We're called in Scripture to not look at injustice and think that we can just turn away from it or pretend like it's not there. We are not allowed to do that if we claim to follow Jesus. But what do we do? I don't have all the answers yet, but I've got three pieces of advice that I would offer to you. In fact, I would charge you as your preacher to take these very seriously. The first is this. Pray. And don't let that be a cliche statement. If you're not going to do it, don't commit to it. Pray. Pray for each of the families, for Alton Sterling, Sterling Philandro Castile, for police officers Brent Thompson, Patrick, Patrick Zamoripa, Michael Cole, Lauren Arlens, and Michael, Michael Smith. Please pray for these families that are hurting. No matter what you think, pain is real. And it affects you and it hurts. And these families are hurting. The next thing is listen. Listen. Don't listen like you have the answers, like you know how to fix everything. Just stop and listen. Build relationships. Get out of your comfort zone and listen. Listen to the fears. Listen to the worries. Listen to the pain. Listen to the suffering. Just listen. Not like you know everything. Just listen. And one of the best ways you can listen is to spend less time on social media. I've seen a lot of anger stirred up on social media, not a lot of reconciliation because of it. Just listen. The third thing I would tell you is that we got together as a leadership of this church yesterday morning and we prayed, and we're committed to doing our part, whatever that is. As we learn and grow and begin to step into this and decide we are going to be a part of the resolution because that's what Jesus' followers do, whatever the Lord puts in front of us, we're committed to participating and helping and resolving, not contributing to issues. So I want to pray this morning for these families. I want to pray for police officers all around this country. I want to pray for families that are fearful all around this country. I want to pray for my friends, my family members. I want to pray for you guys. And I want to pray that the Lord would bless the efforts of the church if the church will stop being silent and start following Jesus. Let's pray. Father, there's a lot of confusion, maybe some frustration, even anger in this room right now and across this country it's real and god uh, honestly we have to stand up here and if we want to fake it we can say we have all the answers but if we're really honest god we don't know what else to do except to lean into you to return to your word and to try to do our very best to follow jesus uh, to place value on every single life that we encounter and to speak truth and to lift up the name of Jesus. Father, I am encouraged. I'm so encouraged by the words of Revelation chapter 21, verses 3-5 through that says, I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people. And God, you yourself will be with us as our God. Father, I am encouraged by the promise that you will wipe away every tear from our eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, or crying, or pain any more. The former things will have gone away and behold, Jesus, you'll make all of this new. Father, we rest on that promise and we offer that prayer and we say, come Lord Jesus. We pray in your son's name. Amen. We're in a sermon series to shift gears, not fully shift gears because it's going to play into this to shift gears a little bit. We're in a sermon series on the Sermon on the Mount. A few weeks ago, we started this sermon series, and uh, we want to walk through what Jesus taught in the most famous sermon ever. And we're calling it Kingdom Life, because Jesus, uh, he sits on the side of this hill and he begins to teach all of these people, people from all over the spectrum people that were poor, people that were wealthy, people that were sick and healthy, that had been healed, not yet been healed, people that were suffering, people that were hurting, people that were happy, all kinds of people. And he begins to teach. And he says, hey, the kingdom of God is available to all of you. And when you enter the kingdom of God, he will transform your heart and your very life. And then he begins to detail, and this is what a transformed kingdom life will look like. And so we discussed what that means for the first few weeks, and now we actually are going to shift into some of the details that Jesus offers us about what a kingdom life looks like. And today, we start with this issue of anger. But before we jump into anger and broken relationships and reconciliation, before we jump into that, I want to remind you of a few things to keep in mind about the Sermon on the Mount. The first principle or truth I want you to keep in the front of your mind is this. The goal of Jesus' sermon, the goal of the Sermon on the Mount, is not behavior modification. It's not simply that you would change your behavior. It's for heart and life transformation. What I've learned in my time in ministry is that usually the people that consider Christianity simply changing the way I behave, they just, I'm supposed to do what's right, I'm supposed to be a good person, those are the people that usually end up battling selfishness and pride. It usually kind of creeps in selfishness because when when you're just trying to make it about your behavior you're trying to get as close to sin as you can so you can still enjoy some of it but not be guilty now some of you are looking at me like not me yeah you all of us we've probably experienced this where we look at a sin and we say i know that's wrong but if i behave this way and this way i can get this close to that sin without being guilty of like like violating it. And so I just want to kind of play around in this arena, but I'm not going to be guilty of that sin because my behavior will kind of get me away from that sin. And we view it that way. So many Christians view, how close can I get before being guilty? Like, because I still want to enjoy some of this. I don't want to fully follow. I I mean, I kind of do want to fully follow, but I really enjoy this. So I'm going to get as close to this sin as I can without being guilty. Let me illustrate for you this way. My wife, Sarah, hates spiders. She hates them. Now, when I say hate, you're like, yeah, me too. No, like, like hate, like, whoa, you really don't like spiders. Uh, she hates them so much, she'll scream when she sees them. She will, she'll yell, she'll go running in the other room, she'll send the kids in. <laughs> no, she won't do that. Uh, she'll call me at work. There's a spider here. When you get home, the door will be closed. He might have a web everywhere, but you got to go in and get him. Uh, she hates spiders. And so when it comes to spiders, my wife, she never says, how close can I get to the spider before it might touch me? And then still kind of live my life. She never says that. For her, it's never, can I butt up next to the spider and kind of enjoy doing life over here but not really have to worry? No, for her, it's I want to get as far away from this spider as I possibly can because I hate spiders. Likewise, if Christianity is just behavior modification, then what happens is we don't develop a hatred for sin. We still satisfy a craving for it because we want to just behave in the right way so we can still enjoy ourselves. But Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount, a kingdom life, a life that's following Jesus, a life that's pursuing Him, develops over time. It's not overnight, but develops over time an actual hatred for the sins that we once craved. Why? Because we see the damage that they produce. And so keep this in mind. When we talk about anger and and broken relationships and fixing broken relationships today, it's not about you just behaving a certain way. It's about allowing God to change your heart so that that might be the result. Second thing, It's pride. Pride usually like kind of sneaks in, so they battle selfishness and they'll, they'll battle pride. And when they battle pride, it's somehow my behavior has earned me some sort of favor with God. Like somehow God might be impressed with me or happy with me, and He might be accepting of my behavior because I'm behaving really well. This kind of manifests itself in just being arrogant. Now I didn't grow up in church, and I went away to Bible college had only been a Christian for about four months, and I'm walking on the Bible college one of the first days, and we all had to go to the president's uh, house on campus, and there's this banquet for freshmen, and we're on our way walking. And this kid comes up walking next to me, and he bumps my shoulder as he's walking. and, And he's, sorry, man. And we're like walking in like a field. And so somehow he bumps my shoulder. Now, not to be arrogant, but where I grew up and when I grew up, If somebody intentionally threw their shoulder into you, it wasn't to say hello, and you didn't respond by saying hello, and so my initial reaction was, are you kidding me? Like, and remember, young, very young Christian, very annoyed by Christians, and here he is walking. He's wearing this immaculate suit, and his question to me was, hey, dude, where's your suit? And I said, hey, dude, don't own one. Never have. Probably never will, right? Uh, And I do. One. Just one. Uh, (laughs) So I'm walking and and he's like, Where's your suit? Don't have a suit. Sorry, man. Are we supposed to wear a suit? I don't know. I am because I'm a PK. And I thought, PK? I didn't even know what that meant at the time. It's preacher's kid. So here's the deal. Side note: please pray for my children not to ever become like that guy. All right? (laughs) So so I'm a PK. I'm wearing a suit. I'm like, good for you. That's like super lame. But he presented himself. (laughs) He presented himself as better than, like he's wearing a suit, he's a preacher's kid, he's going to get in with the president, and here I am, just this guy wearing normal clothes because I had no clue you had to wear a suit in order to be a Christian. Uh, and, and so there, you, don't quote me on that, I'm going to get in trouble. Uh, <laughs> anyway, uh, that's how it manifests itself in him. Somehow, because he behaved better, and he wore better clothing, he was better than. And what I've found is that when we approach our Christianity following Jesus, like just behave a certain way, we do that same thing. I'm better than because I behave this way. God must find favor with me and not my neighbor Bob because that guy's a sinner. Not me, though. I've got my behavior in check. That, see, that just can't work. That can't. And so Jesus says it's not about just changing your behavior, it's about changing your heart. And from the heart, the behavior is just a byproduct. Second thing it teaches us is this. Sermon on the Mount, along with every other law or rule in the Bible, it's intended to offer us a better way to live. And it's intended to offer us a life that we can't get by ourselves. Like, you can't get this life on your own. And so, the Sermon on the Mount's teaching us this is what kingdom life gives you that you can't get by yourself. And so, God gives us these rules and these guidelines to live by. But it's not so He can just push down on us, it's not just so that He can control us. Any parent in the room understands this. Anybody who has kids understands. We have a goal for what we want our kids to become. And so, we have rules in our homes. To guide them to these goals like that's what good parenting is so in my house my sons I've got two sons I want my boys to grow up to be respectable courageous men who take care of and protect women and so I have rules in my house to guide them to this rules like don't talk back to your mom ever my sons know if they get caught talking back to their mom it's not gonna go good rules like don't hit your sister she can hit you you can't hit her right she's not allowed to hit them, but you can't hit your sister. If somebody else hits your sister, you hit them over and over and over again (laughs) until they learn. These rules are intended to say, I want my sons to grow up to be God-fearing, courageous, go-after-it type of guys that love and protect women and chase Jesus. I want my daughter to hate, push back, and attack all boys forever. And so, (laughs) I'm kidding. I kind of want that, but that's not what the rules are going to lead her to. But I do, I do really desire my daughter to have discernment and wisdom and to never lower her standards or find her value in some punk kid. And so we have rules in our house to guide her to become that. In the same way, the Sermon on the Mount is like these guiding principles to, this is what a better life looks like. Not because I want to control you, but because your life will be better if you live this way. And the only way you can live this way is being a part of the kingdom and allowing him to transform and change you. Why would God do that? What do we call that? We call that parenting. And God's a really good dad. He's a really good dad who's crazy about his children. So when we read the Sermon on the Mount, we're reading like almost a love letter, like just live this way because I want the best life for you. And so Jesus launches into this and he begins with broken relationships. And the passage we're going to study today will apply to what's going on in our world today. It will. It does. It's hard to avoid it. You can apply it to our culture today, but here's what I want to challenge you to do. Yes, apply it to the culture, but do not allow your application to the culture to prevent you from wrestling with it personally. What we're going to talk about today will affect everybody in this room, and if you're honest, you're going to have to wrestle through some things. You can't just apply this to the world and forget to apply it to yourself. So Jesus launches in in chapter 5, verse 20, and he says this, For I tell you, Unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Now, by saying this, this sets up everything else in the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus says, hey, the Pharisees, those were the religious leaders of the day. Those are the guys that when you looked at how does a good Christian supposed to live, they'd nail it every time. They're the kid in the suit, shoulder bumping people, letting them know I'm the man. All right? I just called that kid a Pharisee, and I'm sorry. I didn't mean to do that. But anyway, Pharisees were the religious elite. They were better then. They had everything figured out perfect. And so Jesus says, hey, when it comes to righteousness, they're kind of at the top, and you've got to be better than them. And you've got to think to yourself, what? How? How do I... Jesus, are you setting us this... up for failure? Yes, he is. Because when we pursue righteousness on our own, we realize we can't do it. And if we're honest, the only other option is to fail and walk away or to lean into the one whose righteousness is freely offered to us. You see why I love starting with verse 20, is this. Everything after this verse is is intended to be a response to the truth that this verse communicates. Everything after this is to say, hey, because God so freely gave you his righteousness, now your life can look like this. Without him giving you the righteousness first, your life can't look like this. So it all depends on what Jesus did for us. Why? Because we, verse 20 tells us, we can't pursue righteousness on our own. No matter how good you live, your life can't be good enough to impress God. God doesn't need you to have a good day. I just want you to know that. God doesn't need your righteousness to say, hey, good day. God doesn't look at your life when you mess up and say, oh, I didn't see it coming. I didn't know, that was gonna, I didn't know they were going to do that. Hurry up, hurry up. And gathers all the angels and everyone in heaven and says, what do we do? God's not thrown off by you. He doesn't require. He's God. Newsflash. He's going to be okay. What he's saying is this. Verse 20 says, he's given us his righteousness and so as a result of accepting that righteousness, our life can be different and better, and better. And he's going to launch into broken relationships. Now here's my fear. Many of us, we've put up walls around our heart to protect us because we've experienced broken relationships. Like everyone in the room has experienced a broken relationship. Everybody has. We've all gone through that. And so this teaching is about to affect every single one of us. But here's the deal. We like to mask it or push back with comedy and other things. We like to Find humor in broken relationships or avoid it at all costs. Look at any TV show. Every sitcom is based on laughing at these broken relationships. Our literature, discourse over time. I read something real funny this week. I read about Winston Churchill and Lady Astor. And Lady Astor says to Winston Churchill, some of you remember, if you like history, you've probably heard this. Mr. Churchill, if I was your wife, I would put poison in your coffee. That's super nice, right? <laughs> That's the sign of a healthy relationship. But That's a broken relationship. But Churchill's response was this, Lady Astor, if I was your husband, I would drink it. <laughs> That's funny, all right? All right, Many of us relate to that, right? We know, I'm glad I'm not married to so-and-so because I drink the coffee too, right? Many of us can relate to that, right? It's funny when we look at broken relationships out here. It's not so funny when it's like here, when it's our reality, when every day got to walk through it. Every day we feel the pain of a broken relationship. Every day we feel the pressure that's been put on us. Every day we're, we're carrying scars and pain. And this person did this to me, and I did this to that person. And when it's real and it's ours, it's not as funny and not as easy to deal with. And so Jesus launches in right away, and he says, Hey, before we get to all the other stuff, we got to deal with broken, hurt relationships and the anger and resentment that's left after them. So he continues on in this passage, verse twenty. One, He says, You have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be li- liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who's angry with his brother will be liable to, the ju- to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. And whoever says you fool will be liable to the hell of fire. Now I'm going to teach through some of this passage and then we're going to get to some application here. How do we handle this and walk forward? So let me, let me give you a couple pointers. When Jesus says you have heard that it was said, he's not referring to the Old Testament. Many people read that and they think, Jesus is talking about your Old Testament. He's not right here. Because when Jesus, when you read your Bible and Jesus refers to the Old Testament, he said things like, it is written. It, it is written. And when he says, you have heard that it was said, what he's speaking to is what we call oral traditions. All right, everybody say oral traditions. One, two, three. Oral traditions. Well, make sure you're with me. Now, the Pharisees, the religious leaders, they wanted to maintain righteousness, and so you had the law. Let's put the law right here in the middle. If you can see me, I've got just my hands up in a in the, in the circle in the middle here. And the law, how many laws were there? How many commandments? Trick question. There were 618 commandments, not 10. Okay, so in your Old Testament, 10 were highlighted and raised above the others, but there were over 600 uh, commandments, 600 laws in your Old Testament. And they wanted to make sure nobody broke those laws. So over time, their interpretation provided these oral traditions that made sure that don't violate the old tradition, you won't be anywhere near violating the law and you're going to be okay. And so they wanted to protect the law. Good motive, bad approach. And so over time, it created behavior modification. As long as you behave this way, you're going to be okay. Jesus comes along and says, you have heard that it was said to those of old, do not murder. And anyone who does murder is going to be liable to judgment. Real simple. Don't kill people. That was it. That was their interpretation of this. And Jesus knew that when he said this. He knew that their understanding was, I can do a lot of things as long as I haven't physically taken the life of somebody else. I haven't physically killed them. I'm good to go. And then Jesus drops this on them. He says, but I say to you, it's always going to go, oh, thank you, Jesus. Can't wait for this one, right? You're going to experience it over the next few weeks. Um, He says, but I say to you, everyone who's angry with his brother. So when he says, but I say to you, he's saying, hey, I know what you heard in church growing up, but let me tell you what it really means. I know what kind of interpretation you've been listening to, but let me get to the heart of this and tell you what it really means. And so he's peeling back the oral traditions. He's getting to the heart of the law and saying, this is what God intended when he provided this law or this commandment. Now, here's what I want you to know. Anytime in your Bible that a a commandment is given in the prohibitive format. So uh, don't do this, right? Don't do this. It is telling you not to do something, but at the same time, there's an underlying command of what you should do. Let me give you an example. When the Bible says, do not steal, while it is saying, do not steal, at the same time, it's telling you to be generous. How we know this? Because every time you read of somebody not being generous in the Bible, it's called robbery. You're robbing. You're stealing by not being generous. So when it says, do not steal, it's at the same time saying, do be generous. So when the Bible says, do not murder right here, at the same time, it's saying, place intricate value on every single human life. It's not just saying don't murder them. Jesus is also saying place value on every single person you encounter. Every human being has value. So not just do not murder, but also place value. And then he breaks it down into three categories to say, this is how this plays out in your life. Three different things. He's going to talk about resentment. He's going to talk about um, just being indifferent. And then he's going to talk about boiling with anger and frustration. So when he says... He who insults his brother, he's not talking about hostility with that insult. He, he literally means when, when you're indifferent to somebody, when you look beyond them, when they don't matter, when there's just little value given to them, you can just go beyond them, it doesn't matter, I don't have to pay attention to them. Indifference indifference starts out with, you're kind of irrelevant to me. Like, and maybe it's because of something they've done, or some personality trait that they have, but when we display indifference to somebody, because we don't like them, or agree with them, or we don't want to be around them, Jesus says that's the kernel. That's the beginning phases of what can ultimately lead to murder. You're like, whoa, big jump there. Well, to find murder. What if murder, according to Jesus, is trying to rip the value that he's placed in somebody out of them? You can do that physically by ending their life, but you can also do that by displaying indifference in hopes of them feeling like they're less valuable than God tells them they are. The next thing he says, you fool, literally translated out, he's saying you moron." I'm not making that up. That's what it means. That's where we get our English word moron. And what Jesus is saying here is another way that we start out that can be viewed as anger, ripping the value that God has placed in somebody out of them on our own is with our tongue and with our words. And so we say things and we call people names and we try to tell them things. And here's the thing I've learned in my life with my own personal struggles and regrets that I've got in my life. Here's what I've learned. You don't call somebody a moron unless you hope that they believe you. You don't call somebody a name, and you don't come at them with that unless you're hoping somehow they might believe what you're saying about them and therefore devaluing them, lowering their self-confidence or just destroying their belief in themselves. And then last, Jesus says, the last one is anger. And this word literally means to swell up with poison. Jesus isn't talking so much here about a flare or a temper, What he's talking about is resentment. You resent somebody. I resent you. I don't don't find any value in you because of what you've done to me or what I've done to you. Either way, there's anger and frustration, and and it's being displayed to you in the form of, I resent you because of what you did to me. And Jesus is telling us when we leave that unchecked, that can swell up in us and ultimately lead to murder. Look, what, what Paul said when he said, I am the chief of all sinners, how can the apostle Paul... Say he was the chief of all sinners in your Bible. The Apostle Paul is like uh, the, the greatest church planner in the history of the world, one of the apostles, followers of Jesus, and he called himself the chief of all sinners. How could he do that? Because he understood a difference between quantity and quality. That did, what separated him from a murderer, a physical murderer, was not quality. They both had quality value placed in them. It was quantity. He hadn't allowed that anger to be fertilized and festered and grow to the point where he acted out on it. So he knew that. He said, I'm not a sinner just like him in need of grace. I just haven't acted on some of those things because it hasn't been fertilized to grow and to grow up. Now, here's the deal. This has been a personal struggle of mine, to be transparent. I've battled anger for a long time. I had a lot of resentment that went unchecked through my whole childhood. Many of you know my story, but my dad was a police officer who was murdered. My mom was a drug addict in and out of prison after that. Barely ever saw her, she lost custody of us, and I developed a resentment in my heart for her that didn't just affect her, it began to affect all of the relationships. As I studied for this this week, I began to reflect on a lot of the opportunities that I missed in my life because my anger went unchecked. Because I was a frustrated, angry kid growing up that displayed resentment and anger toward other people because somehow I thought I deserved something. And my anger prevented me from experiencing so much joy in life because I left it unchecked. I left it unchecked. I love what Anne Lamott says. My my lack of forgiveness to other people. She says this, not forgiving is like drinking rat poison and then waiting for the rat to die. That is my childhood. That's my upbringing. I was drinking rat poison by not forgiving people that had done wrong to me and not seeking forgiveness for the wrong I had done to other people and just letting it sit and waiting for something else to happen and leaving it unchecked. And Jesus understands this. So he says, before we get to living a kingdom life, you've got a lot of damage and hurt that you bring into this, and we've got to get it fixed. And so he continues in verse 23, and he says, so if you're offering a gift at the altar, if you come to worship, and there, when you get to worship, like the gathering, and you remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First, be reconciled to your brother, and then come and offer your gift couple things here. Jesus is telling them, if you're in worship, you're offering worship to me, to Jesus. He's saying, if you're going to sit and worship God, but you have, are harboring something against somebody else, or you know that somebody's harboring something against you, stop what you're doing. You're not fit for worship. You're knowingly neglecting a damaged relationship, and therefore devaluing the grace that God extended to you in the first place. If you appreciate the grace given to you, He's saying, stop what you're doing and go and offer that grace to other people or seek it from the people that you've hurt. Now, notice this too. Jesus doesn't say, wait until you feel like it. Jesus never says, wait till your feelings and your emotions and your heart lead you to want to forgive somebody. He doesn't say it. I wish he did because then I'd never have to, right? But he doesn't say that. He never, what he says is, make a decision, To reference the Apostle Paul again, when the Apostle Paul said, Hey, in my life, I take every thought captive for the Lord Jesus Christ, what he was saying is, Not all decisions are motivated by our heart. In fact, most should come from our mind. I know what I need to do, and my feelings can follow me. I'm not going to follow my feelings. And what's happening here is he's saying, Don't follow your feelings because you'll never forgive and you'll never seek forgiveness. And your relationships will continue to be damaged and you'll continue to harbor these feelings. Instead, stop what you're doing and go. Make the choice. Doesn't say it's going to be easy, but more on that in a minute. Verse 25, Come to terms quickly with your accuser while you are going with him to court, lest your accuser hand you over to the judge and the judge to the guard, and you will be in prison. Truly I say to you, you will never get out until you've paid the last penny. Now, uh, Jesus tells this parable later on in the Gospel of Matthew in chapter 18. You can read it later, Matthew 18. He tells this story that really illustrates this well, how forgiveness and anger and hostility and frustration... If left unchecked, will imprison you, not the people you think you're imprisoning by holding back your forgiveness. That's what happens to us. And he tells this story. He says, there was this guy that owed a lot of money to this king, millions of dollars. And there's no way he could pay it, but the king calls up the debt. And so now this servant's before the king, and the king says, you owe me money, give me my money. Well, the servant says, I don't have the money. I can't afford it. Please, just show me pity. And in chapter 18, verse 27, it tells us that this king had pity on this servant, The word pity, really, when you translate it out, does not mean what we think it means with I felt bad for him. Pity was a decision that he made to show compassion. It's a a conscious decision that this guy makes to show him compassion. And so in verse 27, he does that. Well, then this guy, having experienced a tremendous amount of grace, then goes out and lives his new kingdom life as a part of the kingdom being restored to the king. And now he's living this life, and somebody who has done wrong by him comes and owes him money and says, hey, will you please forgive the debt? And the guy says, absolutely not, and throws him in prison. And verse 30 tells us he refused. A refusal means you had the ability to and decided not to, a decision. And he makes a decision not to forgive. Throws the guy in prison. The king finds out and comes and punishes this guy. And so the whole point of this is this. When we've truly experienced the grace of God in our lives, we have to wrestle with and sort out and decide to offer that grace to others and seek it from those that we've hurt. This is the point of this anger passage at the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount. You want to restore relationships. You want to fix the world that we live in. It starts with us as individuals living kingdom lives. And God will take that and multiply it beyond what you can imagine. The problem with many of us is we're always looking for the mountaintop. We're waiting for the mountaintop to come, and all of a sudden our society is fixed, and all the problems that we're experiencing right now, and the pain and the suffering and the tears, will somehow go away overnight, and it won't. It happens when Christ followers, who have their hope in the only resolution to what's going on in our world today, the gospel, begin to live kingdom lives and do what the world tells you you shouldn't have to do. And Jesus calls you to do because he knows the difference it will make when his people follow his way to a better life. Now, the Bible says in chapter 18, when you have been wronged, right? when somebody's done wrong to you, you go and you forgive. You initiate. You don't wait. You initiate. Why? Because until that restoration happens, your life's in a prison. And many of you know that. The more I hold on to anger and frustration, the further God feels from me. Right? And chapter 5 tells us when you've done something wrong to somebody else, you initiate. You got to go and take care of it. And now what do we do? Now, I know what it feels like to sit in a chair like you're sitting in and have a guy on a stage tell me, go and forgive. Get out of here. Go forgive. Smile while you do it. It's going to be great. And that's a joke. It's a joke. Forgiveness and restoring relationships is not easy. It's not going to be easy. And I understand. And look, here's the deal. There are some things that you should be angry about. There are some things that you should be mad about. There are some things that have happened to you that should make you angry. And there are things that you have done that should make other people angry. It's not the anger that's the problem. It's when it's left unchecked. And here's the deal. No matter how righteous your anger is, if left unchecked, will imprison you in pain, suffering, pride, and self-righteousness. Until you make a conscious decision, I will no longer be imprisoned by what you did to me or what I did to you. Because of the grace of God, I will extend forgiveness and I will seek forgiveness because of what he's done for me. That doesn't mean it's going to be easy. Please hear me. Jesus doesn't say, walk out. And I don't think, I am not under the impression standing here today that you're going to walk out of here in the next three hours, all of our relationships are going to be great. No, this will take time. And some of you are like, it's not going to happen because I'm not going to do it. And that's fine. But don't lie to yourself. Don't lie to yourself. If you refuse to do that, don't lie to yourself and think that somehow you can hold on to anger and resentment and it won't affect you. Jesus tells us it absolutely will. And it'll prevent you from f- the fulfillment of that kingdom life. So, what do we do going forward? How do I walk out of here, Rob, and begin to take that step toward reconciliation and fixing re- relationships and, and living this kingdom life? How do I do that? I want to leave you with what somebody uh, asked me to do. I'm going to ask you to do, and it's memorize a verse of Scripture. This is the first verse I ever memorized in the Bible. I'd just become a Christian, and somebody wiser than me noticed, this kid needs this verse. And so he turned to James chapter 1, verse 19, and he said, I want you to memorize this. And so he said, hey... My dear brothers and sisters, please take note of this. Everyone should be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to become angry. And so knowing that I battled anger, my senior year of high school, my freshman year of college, I had this, this bag and I wrote that verse on the inside of the bag. And anytime I got frustrated and I felt my anger coming or resentment or I began to dwell on all the negative things that had happened, I just kind of looked over at that verse and tried to allow it to minister to my soul. Should have been wearing it the day that kid shoulder bumped me, but I wasn't. So, But that verse ministered to me. And so I want to take this verse apart and give you your application for today, straight out of the Bible. What is our next step? How do we as a people solve the cultural issue that we're up against? This applies to that. How do you pursue forgiveness from people that you've hurt? This will apply to that. How do you accept forgiveness or at least accept forgiveness personally even when it's not offered in the people that have hurt you? This applies to that. Your first step Acknowledge the grace of God that's been given to you. Your second step: be quick to listen, not hear. You can hear a lot of things. It's harder to listen. When you listen, you are trying to hear from the person. You're, it's a perspective that you're not going to have. It's understanding things that you don't see yet. It's not to listen so you can fix something. It's not listen so you can get defensive and prove somebody wrong. It's not listen so you can be right and they can be wrong. It's simply to sit back and listen to gain a perspective. Second, the, thir- the third step is this, be slow to speak. Think about what you're going to say before you say it. And for some of you, that means don't say anything. Because <laughs> you just can't seem to think about what you're going to say before you talk. So just stay quiet. But we've got to think about what we're going to say before we say it. And intentionally choose our words. And now here's why I love this passage. It's progressive. Every time I've done this, where I was quick to listen, I was slow to speak, I never got angry. I, the, the anger subsides I'll gain a perspective I'll be grateful I didn't say what I regret saying And all of a sudden the anger kind of goes away. Doesn't mean it doesn't come back, boy it comes back And it'll keep coming back But then I'm just quick to listen and slow to speak again So my encouragement to you church Be quick to listen In your relationships Every relationship Be slow to speak Think about what you're going to say before you speak And watch God heal your anger and resentment as you seek forgiveness and extend forgiveness and live this kingdom life. Let's pray.